Let us pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. It was the evening of Passover. Jews from around the world had gathered in the holy city of Jerusalem. Earlier that evening, each household had taken an unblemished lamb to the temple and slaughtered it there, then brought it home to roast it. And now the hour had come for the feast itself. As they ate that special dinner that night, all pious Jews were remembering the mighty works of God on the first Passover over a thousand years ago when God's people were slaves in Egypt. You heard it read from Exodus chapter 12 earlier, how God had commanded each household to slaughter a lamb and to cover their doorposts with its blood. Then while each household ate their supper, God executed a terrible judgment against the Egyptians. He struck all the firstborn in the whole land of Egypt, both human and beast, but he passed over every house that was protected by the blood. And that was how God brought his people out of slavery. God commanded his people to repeat this feast every year, to keep it as a reminder of how when God had judged the wicked of Egypt, he had graciously spared his people by the blood of a lamb. That's what every household in Jerusalem was doing that Thursday evening. And that's what Jesus and his apostles were doing too. Jesus had picked out a place in the city, a large upper room furnished for a dinner party. And he had sent Peter and John ahead that morning to get everything ready. Now, finally, the dinner hour had arrived and Jesus and the twelve apostles reclined together at table to keep the Passover feast. But immediately as the meal begins, it becomes clear that their feast won't be just like every other Passover feast in the city. Because right away, Jesus starts to say and to do strange things. Classic Jesus. So he says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. The ESV translates that phrase, earnestly desired. Uh, uh, another more literal translation might be that he desirously desired or longingly longed to eat it. Jesus is expressing an unusually intense longing, an unusually eager desire. It's not just the emotion of someone who likes Passover and looks forward to it every year. It's the emotion of someone who has something important and special planned. This is our first clue that Jesus has something special in mind for the evening. And we can see why, can't we, in what he says next. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. All through this meal, Jesus shows us in many different ways that he knows perfectly well what's about to happen. He knows that his betrayal and his arrest and his crucifixion are right around the corner. 
And the thing that he most wants to do with his last night before death, the thing he earnestly desires to do, is to eat this meal with his apostles. For I tell you, he continues, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The Passover, Jesus says, is waiting to be fulfilled. It's a waiting of fulfillment. Yes, on the one hand, the Passover is a memorial, something that looks backwards at everything God has done when he struck Egypt and he saved his people out of slavery. But Jesus draws our attention to the fact that Passover also points forward. It points forward to an even greater judgment and an even greater salvation. Passover points forward to God's final victory over the enemies of his people and his final salvation of all those he loves. And Jesus' plan, the thing he's so eager to do with the apostles tonight, that he just can't wait to begin, the thing he's planning to do is to show them how that fulfillment of the Passover is connected to what's about to happen to him. Jesus will use this meal to show the apostles and to show us that God is about to accomplish that ultimate saving act, the one that will make the Exodus look like the dress rehearsal. He's about to accomplish it through Jesus' suffering and death. Jesus is using this meal on Thursday evening to interpret the cross he knows is coming on Friday. And so the plan for the rest of this sermon is very simple. We're going to look at three things that Jesus tells us through this meal about his cross. There's a million things one could talk about in this passage. That's a very rich passage. But in the time that remains, we're going to focus just on three points. And for everything else, you can come back to Monday, Thursday next year. (laughs) So here are our three points for tonight. Three things that Jesus tells us about the cross through what he does in this meal. Jesus tells us first that the cross is a gift. Second, that it establishes a new covenant. And third, that it leads to an eternal feast. That's how Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, interpreted his crucifixion. As a gift that establishes a new covenant and leads to an eternal feast. So here we go, point number one. Jesus' death on the cross was a gift. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. There's a lot of questions we could ask and a lot of things we could say about these amazing words. But here's the point for tonight. Jesus interprets his death on the cross as his gift of himself for us. Now, this is a surprising thing to say for a lot of reasons. For one thing, to all the world, it looks as if the crucifixion is something that happens to Jesus, right? Something that is forced on him by his enemies. They take his life. Of course, in one sense, this is true. It was the chief priests and the scribes, Pilate and the guards, Judas, and behind all of them, Satan, 
who conspired together to betray Jesus, to arrest him, to crucify him. But here Jesus tells us not to focus on that angle. The more profound and important truth, Jesus says, is that the cross is not something that just happened to him. It's something that he did. Something that he chose. Something that he took it upon himself to accomplish. Remember, he didn't need to die this way. At any point on his long journey to Jerusalem, he could have turned around and gone back to Galilee. At any point in his arrest, or during his trials, or while hanging on the cross, he could have called down all the angelic armies of heaven and put a stop to stuff immediately. He could have done that, but he didn't. As Jesus puts it in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. When Jesus submitted himself to the hands of his enemies, they weren't taking anything from him that he hadn't already willed to give. So what was it that he gave? His body. Is there any more intimate gift that a person can give? When you give someone your body, you're giving everything. You're not holding anything back. You don't give your body to just anyone, right? You give it to someone you love. A faithful husband gives his body to his wife. A pregnant mother gives her body to her child. And Jesus gives his body for whom? For you, he says, for us. So there's point number one. Jesus' death on the cross was a gift. A gift to us whom he loved. It's an incredible thing. So what is it exactly that Jesus accomplishes by giving himself in this way? Well, he tells us. Here's our point number two. His death on the cross would bring about a new covenant. Taking the cup of wine at the end of the meal, he says in verse 20, This cup that is poured out for you is the covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Now, a covenant is a relationship built on a promise. You've heard me say that at least once. A relationship built on a promise, like a marriage or an alliance. And the Bible uses that word, covenant, to describe the relationship between God and his people. And it comes uh, from the same story as the Passover. Just a few months after that first Passover, after the exodus out of Egypt, God established a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. He promised to be their God and to have them as his people. He promised to love them, to lead them, to make them holy, and to bring them to the place he had prepared for them, where they could live with him forever. All of that was God's part in the covenant, what God promised to do. And God taught the people their part in the covenant which was simply to have faith in him, and in faith to obey. And the people promised to do that. Now the health of any covenant relationship depends on both parties 
faithfulness to their promises. Well, you know how that went in this case. God, of course, was faithful, perfectly faithful. He never wavered in his love for his people. He never wavered in his commitment to them. But the people, over and over again, they trusted not in the God who had brought them out of Egypt, but in false gods, in material wealth or in human strength. Over and over again, they turned away from God's commandments, living not according to his holy ways, but according to their own foolish notions and wicked desires. And so through most of the Old Testament, the covenant is in peril. The covenant is in danger. God tries to preserve a covenant of love with his people, but over and over again, the sinful people break that covenant. Their sin keeps getting in the way of that relationship. But God had a plan. And so we find him speaking through the prophets, promising a new covenant, a new and better covenant. Listen, for example, to these words from the prophet Jeremiah. This is in chapter 31, verse 31 of this book. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In the new covenant, God would forgive the people's sin once and for all. And he would transform their hearts. So that instead of loving sin and chasing after death, they would love their God and walk in his holy ways toward life. God would forgive their sins and he would sanctify their sinful hearts. To finally have that covenant of love that he longed to have with his people, God would defeat sin. Now, one more thing to say about the Old Covenant. It featured lots and lots of blood. The Passover lamb is one example of this, whose blood covered the households of Israel so that divine judgment passed them over. But the blood of animal sacrifices was used in so many other Old Testament rituals. Whenever things or people needed to be consecrated to God, they were sprinkled or splashed with blood. Whenever sacrifices were made for the sins of the people, the blood was poured out before God's altar. The New Testament book of Hebrews summarizes the situation under the Old Covenant in this way. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But Hebrews also tells us that all this blood was only ever a sign. All these zillions of lambs and oxen killed before the Lord to sanctify and to atone, 
It was never really their blood that purified anything or that caused sins to be forgiven. Rather, all this blood was a sign pointing forward to the one sacrifice that really would make a difference. To the one shedding of blood that would truly sanctify all God's people and make atonement for all their sin. To the one pouring out of blood that would bring the new covenant. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus says these words, he's claiming that his death on the cross will be that one shedding of blood toward which all of the old covenant was pointing. God is about to secure the kind of relationship with his people that he's always wanted. A covenant of mutual love, a covenant built on Jesus' own blood poured out on the cross. In this new covenant, God's people will have forgiveness of their sins. God's people will have their hearts transformed. He will be our God and we will be his people. All because of the blood that Jesus would pour out for us. So Jesus' death is a gift by which he establishes a new covenant. And what does all this lead to? Jesus' death on the cross leads to an eternal feast. Remember how Jesus started the meal by saying that the Passover feast would be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, he ends the meal with a similar saying. Skipping over a huge chunk of our passage, which will make a great sermon for some other time, let's look just at the first part of verse 30. The first part of verse 30, where Jesus promises the disciples, you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. You will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. With just these few words, Jesus gives us a glimpse of an eternal feast in the kingdom of God. This is the same thing he was talking about at the beginning of the meal, right? How the Passover would be fulfilled. Passover was a yearly feast, celebrating the judgment of the Egyptians and the salvation of God's people from slavery. But at the end of history, Jesus tells us, God's final judgment of sin and his great salvation of his people will be celebrated not in a yearly feast, but in an eternal continuous, forever feast. That's where all of this is going. That's where God is taking us in Jesus Christ. By his death on the cross, Jesus is, as it were, setting a table for us, setting a table in his coming kingdom. He prepares a place for us to eat and drink with him, to celebrate with him forever. Every good and perfect thing that he has won for us by his sacrifice, all the heavenly riches that we inherit through him will be there for us to enjoy eternally. At that great banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, as the book of Revelation calls it, we too will recline at table with Jesus and eat and drink with him. Jesus earnestly desired to share this one last earthly Passover meal with his apostles. Can you imagine how excited he must be, how deep his desire must be 
to share that great eternal Passover with all of us, his people, in his kingdom. In just a few minutes, we'll have a little foretaste of that great feast. Because, of course, Jesus didn't just prepare a special meal for his apostles that night. He instituted a special meal for us all. A memorial to be repeated in every generation of the church until we come to that eternal feast. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. And as Paul wrote in our reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In this special meal of Holy Communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim not just the bare fact that Jesus died, we proclaim that Jesus' death accomplished what he said it would, that he gave himself on the cross for us, that he established God's new covenant in his blood, and that because of his work on the cross, we will feast with him in his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you gave yourself for us on the cross, establishing a new covenant in your blood. Grant that with our sins forgiven and our hearts transformed by you, we may, when you come again in glory, eat and drink with you at your table forever. Amen.